0: To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together this morning to focus upon you and to focus upon your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and as we study your word, we learn what you think, we learn who you are, we learn how we are to think as those who are created in your image and likeness, for we were created to reflect who you are to the world and the universe that you have created." And, Father, as we as believers study your word, we recognize there is a spiritual dynamic that should take place, a spiritual dynamic, meaning that God the Holy Spirit is working in and through uh, the teaching of your word to uh, orient our thinking back to reality, to the reality that you originally created before sin entered into human history and corrupted the universe and corrupted uh, mankind so father we pray that you would challenge us with the fact that as we study whatever we study it is all designed to orient our thinking back to that original created order that will be restored eventually that we are being prepared today for an eternity with you and that means we we need to learn to think your thoughts after you to think as you would have us to think and to live as you would have us to live now we pray that we'd be challenged by the study of your word this morning, and that our understanding of grace versus works would be uh, expanded and opened up a little more. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're studying in Matthew chapter 23, and we are in a section that it demonstrates the righteousness of God and his holiness, as he is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, outlining his condemnation of the religious leaders of Israel. This chapter is really ultimately all about Israel, but the implications of what Jesus says relate to every single person in human history because it demonstrates the contrast between grace and works. And this is why Jesus is so harsh in his condemnation of the Pharisees is because what they are offering to mankind is a useless life preserver. And if we were to uh, try to save someone from drowning with that which would not provide any help whatsoever... We, under the law, we would be guilty of causing their death because we had not provided that which we could have provided. It is a serious matter. And so today, as people come to the Scriptures who are not oriented to the Word of God at all, it seems that that this just doesn't fit their view of Jesus as the so-called uh, as the Prince of Peace because they misunderstand peace. They misunderstand uh, who Jesus is. They think of him as sweet Jesus, meek and mild. And there is another side to his character. Like any human being or any person, genuine person, there are many different facets and dimensions to the person of God and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those actions which are... Um, which are the result of his love there are other actions which are influenced more by his righteousness and justice righteousness justice and love are not mutually exclusive which is a, uh, a an assumption by fallen rationalistic mankind that thinks that that God must be a certain way or he can't be God, that Jesus must be a certain way or he can't really be uh, the Son of God. And so they take these ideas that are generated from the idolatry of their own soul, where in their mentality they have manufactured their own idea of what God is, their own idea of what jesus should be as the son of god and then they come back and they impose that on the text and it's difficult at times as believers when we are interacting with a culture sometimes there are family members sometimes there are friends sometimes they're co-workers but we all have to interact with people who have seriously distorted views of god and of jesus and so uh it is not our place to enter into the kind of condemnation that Jesus has here in this chapter. This is a unique sort of condemnation, and it flows from the fact that he is the uh, God of Israel. He is the second person of the Trinity, the triune God, who is the God of Israel, who has is entered into covenant with with Israel, and that covenant is ultimately based upon grace. It's a false dichotomy to say that God in the Old Testament is a God of law, and in the New Testament, he's a God of grace. He is the originator and the giver of the law to Moses in the Old Testament. But he is still the God of grace. We see this, and God uh, tells us in Genesis chapter 6 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Moses was the recipient of God's grace in Israel. By the giving of the law is the recipient of God's grace. God chose Israel for a purpose; that was His gracious uh, action. He was He demonstrated His love uh, for Abraham and his descendants in entering into these covenants with Israel in the Old Testament. So there's not this this, this false dichotomy between love and justice. The two work together, just as they do. Uh, with mankind so Jesus is bringing this condemnation against the Pharisees and it heads it is it is building in a crescendo to his condemnation and complete rejection of Israel as a nation and his announcement of the coming judgment uh, that will destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple and uh, end up with the scattering of the Jewish people throughout the world in fulfillment of God's promises and prophecies in the Old Testament to bring this kind of discipline and judgment upon Israel if they fail to uh, uh, obey the law. And so that's what this is all about. But in studying this, we get pictures of the legalism, the different ways in which legalism enters into the thinking of unbelievers as well as believers. So there's application there, but it also reminds us of God's grace. So what we're looking at here is Jesus, these seven woes, as I outlined, remind you that there is a another one that is debated uh, due to a textual issue. Uh, but we're just going to deal with the seven main ones here plus uh plus one so just to bring us back to where we've been since we've had our uh, focus. Uh, change during the last week a little bit with the holidays. Uh, in this last section of, of Matthew, from chapter 21 to 25, just before his arrest, uh, Jesus is presented to Israel as her messianic king and is rejected. He's publicly presented to Israel as her messianic king when he enters in in what is referred to as his triumphal entry on uh, what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. Then he is rejected by the nation, but not by all of the people in chapter 2118 to 2246. There's a whole series of interchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders where he is rejecting them and points out that they are through the parables as well as through his other interaction that they have rejected him and there will be judgment coming upon them. And this section is followed by chapter 23, where Jesus rejects the nation and announces these seven plus one woes on the religious leaders. Now, the issue throughout chapter 23 comes down to this, as I've covered the last few weeks, is that religion is man doing the work. And there are many people who get caught up in this, that we are to do things and God will bless us. That is the essence of legalism. Man does the work. It, it comes from his self-absorption, and that man is basically impressed with his own dignity and the good things that he does. But he doesn't have an an infinite reference point, and a finite reference point does ha- does not have meaning without. Um, an infinite reference point and when the infinite infinite reference point is the righteousness of God then we understand that the good things that man does is just a relative righteousness it's just relative to what other people do but in relation to God it is it falls short for all have sinned, the scripture says, and fallen short of the glory of God, and that phrase, "Glory of God is a way that uh, the Jews would refer to the entire essence of God. It is a a summation of the essence of God, so uh, a a nuanced translation of that verse would be, "For all have sinned and fall short of the character of God." And since we do not meet God's standards, then we are without hope. So God has a solution. And in Christianity, we believe that God does all of the work, provides salvation through the uh, penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and we simply accept it by faith. So religion is based on legalism, and there are a lot of Christian legalists And Christianity is based on a relationship with God that is grounded on faith, in faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Now, last time we looked at the first two plus one, uh, woes. The first one, Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, the word woe is important because it goes back to Isaiah chapter 5, it's a, it's a Classic Old Testament word that refers to the announcement of divine judgment upon Israel. The Hebrew, it's an onomatopoeic word. It sounds like what it is saying. So it's, uh, and the Greek is oi, which it sounds just like the Hebrew word oi, sounds just like the Yiddish word oi. And it's the interjection or exclamation somebody makes when something bad happens. They make this kind of noise, so it indicates something harsh that is happening. They're called hypocrites, a term that comes from a Greek term in drama, but it refers to someone who is wearing a mask. It's it's not really the idea in the scripture of being two-faced, it's the idea of of saying you believe one thing and uh actually doing something else and in it's it's really developed in the seven woes that there is a a problem with the pharisees in that they are uh talking about just external realities with the denial of internal realities uh and as such they are uh Claiming to believe in a coming kingdom and a coming Messiah whose coming is soon, who will deliver Israel, but then they are preventing the, anyone from following the Messiah who came, Jesus, and entering into the kingdom that he is presenting. So they are saying they believe in a kingdom and a Messiah, but they're preventing anyone from truly entering into it. Uh, this term also indicates that they are unbelievers. That's an important issue in interpreting several things coming up in future chapters that the pharisees are presented here as unbelievers this is further substantiated as i pointed out by him jesus calling them a brood of vipers and that is in matthew 23:33, uh, 33 uh, which indicates they are the seed of satan and it indicates that they have no relationship with the Lord, as seen in Matthew fifteen seven to 9. Uh, they draw near to me with their mouth. As Isaiah said, they draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. It's just lip service. It's just superficial. Their heart is far from me. So we looked at the first woe, Matthew 23, 13. They kept people from entering into uh, heaven and eternal life. The other woe is... Matthew twenty three fourteen, which echoes Mark twelve, forty and a parallel in Luke. And this is not found in some manuscripts. And so some people say, well, it's not in the older manuscripts or some of the best manuscripts, and for them older is best. But it is found in the majority of manuscripts. And so I believe it is here, but it's usually not counted. And since nearly everything you read will talk about the seven woes, I'm not going to try to change that I'm just going to call them the seven plus one and then we won't get too confused Uh, the third woe Matthew 23 16 to 22 is where we stopped last time this is the longest of the woes this is the longest one and uh, just some things to learn about this it's the third the longest and the most developed of the seven woes And the focus on this woe is on the Pharisees' superficial rationales that they developed in order to avoid fulfilling a vow or an oath that they had taken. Uh, The Torah, the Old Testament, first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Torah or the Law, meaning instruction, has a, a lot to say about oaths. They're mentioned in Leviticus 5.4, Numbers 5.19, Numbers 30, and Deuteronomy 6.13. I'll give you those again. Leviticus 5.4, Numbers 5.19, Numbers 30, and Deuteronomy 6.13. The Mishnah, which isn't written down and organized until about 200 A.D., uh, has a whole tractate, a whole section called the vows, the netarim. And that's followed by a second tr- tractate called the nazir from the uh, Hebrew word that we take as Nazarite, talking about one kind of vow, the Nazarite vow. So there's at least two tractates in the Mishnah that focus on. On the vows. Now the Mishnah is a, uh, a collection of the teachings of the rabbis from going back to 200 BC. So it's taking what they taught that had been handed down through oral transmission for about almost 400 years, and codifies that. So that gives us a lot of ideas about what the rabbi said and taught about the vows, and some of it was good and follows what the scripture says, and some of it we see the kind of thing that Jesus is condemning here, where they're trying to come up with uh, various uh, uh, sophisticated-sounding rationales that are very misleading and are ultimately illogical, but they are designed to uh, give people an out. So, if you make a vow and then sometime later you decide, well, that was I was just a little too emotional, enthusiastic. I need a way out, and so it would give people an escape clause from from these vows. So, this is a long section. Uh, from verses uh, 16 to 22, I want to read them to you because I don't want, I'm not going to go through them bit by bit. We're just going to summarize what they are saying in uh, chapter 23, starting verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. Notice how he several times will point out how he refers to them as being blind. Again, that emphasizes that they're spiritually dead. The fact that human beings are blind, I mean, are spiritually dead is represented by blindness. We have John, uh, Jesus healing the blind man in John chapter 9 to teach that he is the light of the world. We'll come back to that in our conclusion. Woe to you blind guides who, who say, whoever swears by the temple, this is where Jesus is summarizing their type of teaching. Whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. In other words, you can swear an oath by the temple, but it really doesn't mean anything. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, that's much more significant. Then you're stuck with it. He's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. Notice how Jesus is again endearing himself to the Pharisees, uh, calling them fools and blind. Now, I, 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 one thing we ought to note about that is the Old Testament tells us that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So when Jesus is calling him, them a fool, he is not simply being insulting. He is saying something about their spiritual nature. Not only does he say they are blind, which indicates they're spiritually dead, but he calls them fools, which indicates they are in their experience they are denying the existence of God because of the way they handle his word. So even, he's not saying, and they wouldn't say, well, we don't believe in God. They do. But the God they believe in is not, the God of the Old Testament Torah. It is the God they have manufactured out of their own soul and so that they can avoid what is actually said, uh, in the text. So he, that, that's a s- packed, uh, spiritual term. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And he goes through and uses these several different examples of where they are swearing by one thing, and trying to artificially distinguish it from something else. For example, whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he's obliged to perform. So they're drawing an artificial distinction between the altar and the sacrifice. Verse 19, he says, fools and blind, again emphasizing their spiritual de- spiritually dead condition for which is greater the gift of the altar that sanctifies the gift excuse me the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift by asking that question he's showing that they've made an artificial distinction it says therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So what we see here, if we break it down, is there's a pronouncement of the woe in verse first part of 16. Woe, or judgment, condemnation to you blind guides who say. Now, not all the Pharisees would have gone along with this. As I pointed out a couple of lessons back, we had seven different kinds of Pharisees. The seventh kind was the one who truly loved God. These would be represented by those who had, who responded, to the gospel both before the crucifixion and after the crucifixion. Before the crucifixion, men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they responded to the gospel. So there were some Pharisees, even at that time, that were had already trusted in Jesus as Messiah. But for the most part, they fit the patterns of the other six. Now, a lot of Christians fit those patterns too. That's why I titled that lesson, What Kind of Pharisee Are You? A lot of Christians get into very superficial approaches to their spiritual life so there's the pronouncement of the woe in verse 16a and then the second summary of what he is saying is the reason for the woe why is he announcing this judgment And that is because the Pharisees have made these artificial distinctions in order to avoid being held to an oath or a vow that they have taken. And we see this in the second part of 16, where he says, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform. They make these artificial distinctions between the temple itself and um, the gold of the temple. Or in verse 18, between the altar and the gift that is on the altar now as we look at this we see that there's basically uh... four different pairs that are discussed by jesus there's the temple and in all through this section the greek word that's used for temple here is the word naos and naos always refers to the inner sanctum the holy of holies in the middle of the temple not all of the temple precincts it wouldn't include the courtyard of the of the gentiles or the court of the women it's just that inner sanctum the holy of holies and the holy place so he makes a distinction you can swear an oath by the temple is what they were saying but that didn't count unless you if you were really serious you made an oath by the gold of the temple so it would sound good if you said i swear by the temple but you're not held to it so it's an artificial distinction. Or they would swear by the altar. and then. Uh, uh, but if they're really serious, they would have to swear by the sacrifice of the altar. Scripture doesn't make those kinds of distinctions. Uh, in the second part of the passage, he talks about the fact that they would swear by the temple, but the temple is sanctified by the one who dwells there, who's the, the Lord. And the word for dwelling in Hebrew is shakan, from which we get our... Uh, the other word, Shekinah. Shekinah is a noun form from the verb to dwell, and it comes across into uh, Greek as the word skene, which also is the same word. It shows up in Russian and several other languages. Greek That Greek word skene uh, leaks into English as the uh, theatrical term Scene, S-C-E-N-E. The Greeks didn't have a soft C. They only had a hard C. So they softened it into English. So that all refers to a dwelling, uh, some, something of that nature. Uh, it's not the word heros which is a word that would describe the broader section so he's really talking about that area where God where God dwells. And then they would swear by heaven, but Jesus says what sanctifies heaven is the is the throne of God, so you can't make this distinction. So he asks two rhetorical questions. Notice how Jesus uses questions, not they're, they're designed to get people to think. We often, I really try to learn, am learning to do this, is to ask people questions and not force them to hurry their way through the answer. Most people take time because most people don't think about things too deeply. I'm not being insulting. I find that most people, A, we have people who have a deficit in their education so they don't know how to think. In many cases, there are people who've never ever had anyone around them who asked them a thought-provoking question. It, it just blows their mind. And so, so you have to give them time to think about things. I mean, we're, we're in too big of a hurry often to try to correct people on the gospel and correct people's understanding of God without letting them go through that thoughtful process of self-discovery. And so Jesus is asking them these questions. Of course, Jesus' context is a little different than when we're trying to witness to somebody. He says, Fools and blind, for which is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Well, the way he sets up the question is pretty obvious. There's no distinction. And then he says the second time, fools and blind, for which is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Now and Jesus is asking these questions. He's asking them rhetorically to bring out the point. He's not really waiting for them to give an answer for self-discovery. He's already condemning them because they're people who are already set against God. And you can ask them every question in the world, and they're never going to try to probe or think because they've already decided in the core of their soul to reject God. That's where they are. And then he concludes this little section with three positive statements where he says therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it and he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of god and by him who sits on it and the point that he is making is that that you can't come up with these uh little uh distinctions that are superficially plausible but actually are logically flawed and they are misleading and will lead people into judgment, into divine judgment. He shows that by his argument here, he is showing that the significance of both the place and the offering or the offering or the person of God are inseparably connected to one another. To swear an oath on one is to swear an oath on the other. Therefore, all oaths he is saying are equally binding. Now he doesn't condemn the take using an oath here because that's clearly authorized in the Old Testament. What he is saying is that you have to be extremely cautious and careful, and weigh the uh, alternatives to taking an oath because once you take it you're bound by it and you can't just walk away from it so this really isn't difficult what he's saying to the Pharisees he's just demonstrating the falsehood of their of their logic so another way to look at this is by making these false distinctions they're profaning the name of God and in effect by coming up with ways that you can avoid fulfilling an oath, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. We often think, well, taking the Lord's name in vain is some sort of curse word where you put the name of God or Jesus in front of something. That's probably the most uh, light form of taking the Lord's name in vain. Often when people get in a pulpit, and they say that God has spoken to me. Now they are taking the name of God in vain in the kind of way that, that the law is prohibiting. When people stand up and say that, that God is going to do this, God is going to do that, and there's no direct revelation for either, then once again they are taking God's name in vain. There's a lot that happens in Christianity on every single Sunday morning from, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pulpits in this country where the pastors are taking the Lord's name in vain. But we never call them on that because we've sort of misinterpreted and misdefined what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. So we have to be very careful. So Jesus is, in effect, telling them that by this, they're, they're breaking one of the uh, Ten Commandments and taking the Lord's name in vain. So uh, then, by calling them blind guides, um, by calling them blind guides, he again, as I pointed out, indicates that they're spiritually dead and blind and have no perception of the truth. This goes back to Hebrew. I mean, to Matthew fifteen seven through, and through nine and verse fourteen. There he calls them hypocrites. He identifies the problem as lip service in verse eight. That they, their worship of them is vanity in vain they worship me. So they're taking the Lord's name in vain by the way they are worshiping. And then in verse 14, he concluded by saying, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. They're all spiritually dead. And if the blind leads them both, both will fall into a ditch, a picture of eternal condemnation. He is going to use this Metaphor of blindness five times in this section in verse 16. They're blind guides. In verse 17, they're fools and blind. In verse 19, um, verse 19, they are fools and blind. I have blind here. Uh, verse 24, they're blind guides. In verse 26, they are blind Pharisees. So he is, uh, he reiterates this five times for, uh, for effect so he is he emphasizes their spiritual death in matthew five thirty four to thirty seven uh Jesus is teaching them about um, how to avoid he's not teach he's teaching them to uh, it's better to avoid taking oaths and simply affirming with a yes or a no. He's not giving a new principle there. He is simply saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, So if you take an oath, make sure that you are going to be able, able to fulfill it. Underlying the warning against taking oaths is that we as creatures in the image of God are to reflect the character of God, and God is not a liar. Two passages... Titus one two in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, just by this little uh, parenthetical statement, Paul affirms that God cannot lie and he will fulfill his promises. First Samuel fifteen twenty nine in Samuel's rebuke of Saul, which we studied not long ago in our Tuesday night study, and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. And just recently, we studied Psalm, the last couple of uh our three Tuesday nights, we studied Psalm 59. And in Psalm 59, David refers to God as what? The strength of Israel. So you see, that was apparently a common name to refer to God. Samuel used it in 1 Samuel 15. David used it in Psalm 59. So then we come to the fourth woe. The fourth woe, again emphasizes their superficiality, that they are majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. They are rejecting significant issues and spending all of their time on minor issues. The minor issues are irrelevant to their spirituality. The major issues are important to their spirituality, but they would rather talk about that that's not important because to talk about that which is can be rather convicting i know nobody here would ever do anything quite like that it is common in all religion we don't want to talk about those things where the holy spirit is going to drive it home and it will be personally convicting let's talk about something else like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin that that same kind of thing so in these two verses he articulates the woe, he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, these are herbs uh, but they are considered to be part of the crop part of that which is harvested for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith these you ought to have done, see he's not saying that Um, uh, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone he's not saying you shouldn't talk about paying the tithe of mint and anise and cumin but you do that but you also have to talk about the weightier more significant issues of the law related to justice mercy and faith he says blind guides he calls them blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel so as we look at this Two passages in the Old Testament talk about herbs as being part of the harvest of crops leviticus twenty seven verse thirty and deuteronomy fourteen twenty two to twenty three leviticus twenty seven thirty and deuteronomy fourteen twenty two to twenty three It's not that tithing her herbs was not important or not correct it's just that it is a lower priority than weightier matters such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Uh, This isn't an hierarchical ethic. It is saying that even within the law there are some things that are more significant than others. When we look at this last verse, blind guides who strain a gnat and swallow a camel, I think that this was a common idiom. And it is a play on words, especially in the Aramaic. Very possibly Jesus said this originally in Aramaic, but it was written under inspiration in Greek. The Aramaic word for gnat, as you see on the board, is the word akalma, Q-A-L-M-A. And it sounds like and is very similar to the Aramaic word for camel, which is gamla. So it's a play on words. The Bible is filled with these little puns or paronomasias, and so even uh, these sayings are, are written that way so that it's memorable, so you can remember it. Jesus is alluding to Micah 6, 8 in this passage, which says, "'He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God.'" That's the background for what Jesus is talking about in the fourth woe. Then we come to the fifth woe. In the fifth woe and the sixth woe, uh, we see this emphasis on externals only with a—it's more than just a denial. It's they're totally ignorant of the need for an internal transformation as the precursor to an external transformation. So in the fifth and the sixth woes, the focus is on the ultimate spiritual issue of internal transformation. Now in verses 25 and 26, uh, we see a passage, and I've often seen this applied to sanctification. I don't think that's the original meaning of Jesus. He's not talking about their spiritual life and spiritual growth because in order to have spiritual growth, you have to be born again i think they're spiritually dead i think that's the issue here is that they're spiritually dead therefore there can be no genuine external cleansing verse 25 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish see it's using a picture of the concern that we discover in the And the Mishnah with a tremendous concern for the externals, for ritual purity in the area of of dietary laws and how to use the right dishes for the right things. We talked about this in the past that in the Mosaic Law there is a command that a, a calf should not be boiled in his mother's milk. Now, that has direct allusion to practices in the pagan worship of Baal, and what it was communicating was that the Jews were not to worship God in the way the idolaters worship their gods. But in Second Temple Judaism, they got to the point where they were trying to make sure they never ran the risk of violating that original law. And so they, they get reached a point where they completely separated uh, any kind of utensil that would be used in dairy products with those that were used in meat products. And so even today, you go to Israel, and many of the hotels that cater to, not just to, to a, a Gentile crowd, but also to Jews will have um will have a either a meat kitchen or a dairy kitchen. And one of the uh nicer hotels where we've stayed, I've stayed several times, has a dairy kitchen. And I don't like to stay there very long because the menu gets rather boring. It's mostly like, you know, pasta and fish. That's it. Uh but I just I found out since I was there the last time that the room service menu is a meat kitchen. So if you want a hamburger, you have to do it through room service, but if you go down and eat in their restaurant. But it's completely separate kitchens, completely separate utensils. And if you go to an orthodox home, an observant home, you will discover they have two complete sets of dishes, those for dairy and those for meat, because they want to avoid ever using a a dish that might have a molecule of dairy on it and then you put beef there and it's possible in some extended sense that that is the mother uh, or that is the calf of the mother from whom the milk came and so to avoid all of that so they go to a, a, an excessive amount to make sure all of these things are done proper as well as cleansing so it's talking about he's using that as an analogy that they are just so obsessed with this that they clean the outside of the cup and dish but inside it's still dirty it looks good on the outside but inside it's filled with extortion and self indulgence it is filled with sin it's, they never correct the core problem and so i think that what this is saying is that they're they in the light of the fact that they're again called hypocrites they're blind guides etc they're not saved that's the cleansing of the inside it's not talking about experiential cleansing it's talking about positional cleansing they're not saved and so Uh, He tells them that first you have to cleanse the inside of the cup. That's what happens when we trust in uh, Christ for salvation. And then the outside can truly become cleansed. If you're just washing the outside, that would be simple morality. And even unbelievers can be very moral and have a measure of integrity that often outshines believers. I I frequently told the story of when I was in seminary, I would house sit for a family, and they went to Northwest Bible Church, and they were a solid Bible-based family. But whenever they needed work done on their home, they would always hire either a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness because they were working their way to heaven, and so they did a much better job then you're run-of-the-mill, grace-oriented Christian. That's such a convicting thing. Let's move on. Okay. Blind Pharisee. First cleanse the inside of the cup. That would be regeneration. Then... It's possible to truly change the outside. This reminded me of what happens in Matthew 12 when Jesus is rejecting the Pharisees. They've rejected him, accused him of casting out a demon by the power of Beelzebub. And he gives this example. He says, when an unclean man goes out, unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. He says, I will return from my house from which I came. When he comes home, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. This is morality. You can morally clean everything up. But if there's no real internal change, then it's it's going to end up being worse later on. And then he says, uh, so when he comes home, he finds everything clean. This moral reformation, you've cleansed the outside of the cup. Then this demon goes and takes seven more spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, because there's no internal transformation, no internal cleansing that comes from faith in God's promise of salvation. And the sixth woe is in verses twenty seven and twenty eight, continues the same idea of the previous one, which has to do with uh external uh cleansing when inside everything is still. Uh, de- spiritually dead woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness now according to the Mosaic law if you touched a dead body or a, a carcass then uh, you were you were uh, R- rendered ritually unclean and so uh, there are a lot of graves in Israel and so in order to warn people off so that they would not accidentally sit down and have a picnic on top of some somebody's grave they would uh, paint tombs and put uh, tombstones over these graves and they would paint them uh, with whitewash so that it would warn people from coming to to the grave and being rendered ritually unclean. And so that's what Jesus is referring to. On the outside looks very white and very clean but on the inside it's it's a grave it's filled with dead men's bones and the idea is you look good on the outside with your morals and your ethics and all your ritual activity and religious activity but on the inside you're spiritually dead you're unregenerate Uh, that has to be solved before you can uh, truly work on the outside so verse 28 he says even so you also are outwardly appear righteous to men but inside you are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness you're still spiritually dead so these cover the first six i want to wait and cover the seventh because it it goes directly into the final judgment on israel we'll cover that next time and finish the chapter I want you to let you know what's coming up we'll finish the chapter and then I'm going to take a pause because chapter 24 takes us into the Olivet Discourse and that's when we start getting into a lot of prophetic themes so it works out nicely according to the calendar that we'll finish this section up in the next uh, next couple of weeks And then the three weeks that will conclude with Christmas Day, we will focus on uh, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and its significance. And then when we come back on the 1st of January, that is when we will start into the prophetic section in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. But what's our conclusion here? This passage is about condemning legalism, condemning religious activity instead of genuine spiritual rebirth and grace-based salvation and living. So the conclusion is that, first of all, there must be an internal transformation before there's a relationship with God. There has to be a transformation internally from being unclean to being clean. This compares with the transformation from being blind to receiving sight. The perfect picture of this is in John chapter 9 when Jesus healed the blind man. And in verse 5, Jesus said in reference to what he was doing. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 8 and John 9 teaches that Jesus is the light of the world. He comes in to illuminate things. This is, goes back to John chapter 1, that he is the light, and in him was no darkness. And he uh, brings light into the world. In John nine thirty five, after an interchange with the Pharisees again, he is talking to the man who was blind that he healed. Notice the blind man had no idea Jesus was going to heal him. He isn't believing in Jesus to be healed. He isn't seeking to be given sight. Jesus just did it out of his sovereign will. Now he's going to come back and use that as an opportunity to focus on the gospel. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. The Pharisees dumped him. And, uh, he went, Jesus went looking for him and said, Do you believe in the Son of God? And the blind man answered and said, Who is he, Lord? He's still not sure. Remember, he was blind, so he never really got a good look at Jesus. He said, Who is he? Who is the Son of God? That I may believe in him. He wants to believe. That's an expression of his positive volition. And Jesus said, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. So Jesus says, I'm standing right here. I'm the one who healed you. And then the blind man said, Lord, I believe. Throughout the Gospel of John, the only basis for salvation is belief. It's not asking Jesus into your heart. It's not walking an aisle. It's not changing anything. It's not making a commitment. It's not even repenting, although I do think that one sense of repentance is to change from not believing to believing, but in John, there's no mention of the word repent. It is simply believe, 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 believe. That is how the internal transformation takes place. It is totally on the basis of grace and not on the basis of works. Second, what follows that should be an experiential, an, an experiential internal transformation. This is what Paul describes in Romans 12, too, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, that can't happen until you have first trusted in Christ as Savior. After that, we have to have our mind renewed so that we can prove or demonstrate that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's the process of the spiritual life. It is an ongoing cleansing process. And third, both of these are based on Grace not on a superficial obedience to an external morality, but an internal transformation that takes place on the basis of grace. Uh, Ephesians 2.8.9 says that, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Titus three five says that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So salvation is based on grace. The spiritual life is based on grace. But that doesn't mean it's lawless. It means that we understand that God is the one who does the work, and we accept it. We don't do the work and expect God to bless us. God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be reminded that our relationship with you is based on grace. It's based on our our response to your love and to your goodness to us, and the fact that you have done everything necessary, that we are not trying to earn your favor. We are not trying to gain access on the basis of our own efforts, our own works, our own morality, but that that is just simply a counterfeit, that the reality is that we have to be transformed from the inside out as a result of your grace, and that can only come as a result of trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. The issue is believing on him. And we'll have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening that they would be clear that salvation is being freely offered to each and every person and that we don't have to do anything to make ourselves savable. We don't have to go through any kind of moral reformation. We don't have to quit anything in order to get saved. We just have to believe that you provided a perfect salvation for us, that we trust in Christ and his death for us on the cross and therefore we will have eternal life once we believe that. Father, we pray that you challenge each of us for a need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.